0: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Jim Horton, is a partner at Waypoint Partners. They are one of the leading growth and corporate finance advisory firms around today. And if you're interested in anything to do with M&A, uh, such as when is the right time to sell your agency, valuing your business, succession planning, the influx of private equity, which seems to be around everywhere today and what that's doing to agencies that are looking to buy and those that are looking to sell, then you've come to the right place because this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. We also discuss the impact that COVID has had on agencies that are looking to buy and sell. This is just an epic conversation about all of those things. This is Jim's second time on the show and he's had the most amazing career Uh, from his time in Omnicom in the early 2000s to BDO, to Results International, where he's advised on many, many leading marketing agency businesses. He's helped win some mega deals for Waypoint partners uh, from, you know, the likes of We Are Social, Headland, A Thousand Heads, just go down the list of some amazing names. He's got a really impressive background and career history, very knowledgeable about this space. I suggest that you listen to the conversation at least twice because we go quite quickly and we cover quite a lot of ground. If you are interested in anything to do with mergers and acquisitions and private equity in the agency space, then this is an absolutely must listen to conversation. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Jim Horton. My extra special guest this week is Jim Horton. Jim has over 25 years of international experience working with and within marketing communications businesses on corporate finance, including M&A, exit planning, joint ventures, deal structuring, post-merger integration, and earnout management. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Jim Horton, welcome back to Agency Dealmasters.
1: Nathan, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me again.
0: Absolutely pleasure having you back on the show. I thought a really interesting place to start would be for you to give us a bird's eye view of agency M&A today and give us a picture of sort of how things have changed over the last five years or so. What types of agencies are selling their businesses? Who are the buyers? Who are the main players? And how has the space changed in the last few years?
1: Yeah, I um, thanks. It, and it's, it's a great topic. I suppose I can do the five years or I'll take us back uh, maybe a couple of years since we since we last did this. But if we look back the five years, we were already in a place where this conversation wasn't really a big, about the big marketing services networks. It was at that point, probably five years ago, really about the the management consultancies, particularly Accenture and Capgemini and EY have been pretty active as well. That whole field's widened out massively. That kind of that consultancy community that's in You know, this industry, the industry that that all of us on this kind of in this podcast community would be tuned into. So you've got software consultants, particularly in the space alongside the strategy consultancies now as well. But they've they've sort of, as everyone kind of goes in cycles in M&A, that kind of early strong burst of kind of building out platforms has slowed up for most of those organizations. Not so much the software guys, but the strat consultancies have slowed up a bit now. And they're in the kind of next stage of M&A build for them, which is much more sort of targeted, almost kind of niche specific skill sets as opposed to scale build. So it's a slightly different phase of cycle for them. And the other thing that's really, really happened in the last, particularly last two years, but on gathering momentum alongside the consultancy guys, just just got ahead of myself, is a private equity community hmm. that you know, we've, seen, we've seen lots of in the past, but really in the last two years, and I think it's, it's true of our experience at Waypoint, but I think all of our advisory peers would have the same experience. Private equity, either direct investment from private equity firms or or businesses that are backed by private equity investment vehicles, you know, building big international platforms, either discipline-specific or, or more generalist, is completely driving the market at the moment. It's by far the dominant force. And I suppose the footnote into kind of what's changed in the last five years, and this might be a bit surprising for some, although their earnings announcement is starting to come out at the moment for the for the half year, is the networks are starting to come back a bit. Okay, I mean, It's a slightly different agenda for them. It's a bit of a reshape what they've already got kind of agenda, but they're hmm. starting to come back onto the scene a little bit, whereas they've been almost completely absent for the last few years.
0: Hmm. Really interesting. Okay, so... I want to start by talking about agency M&A first and then talking about PE, which I think there's a lot of confusion with agency folks, especially around what PE actually is and sure. and, and sort of how it can help the business. But let's let's talk about sort of agency M&A f- first. From an agency's point of view, you know, if, if they've got an asset that they've been building for the whole of their lives sometimes, um, there's a huge amount of emotional investment that's gone into building their baby. When is the right time for an agency to sell?
1: Okay, that 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 requires about a two-day podcast rather than (laughs) rather than the short form. But you've got thirty seconds. I I think that yeah. Okay, here we go. In my mind, and you know, there are different views on this. In my mind, good good businesses will and should always be led to define the right moment based on internal circumstances in their business rather than the external market. External market right now is as strong as it's ever been. In fact, probably as strong as I can remember. I've been doing this for 25 years or so. Uh, the difference between this market today and say 2007 when valuations were at a similar level and deal pace was at a similar level was that 2007 was built off this kind of weird artificial debt bubble that then went pop on us the following year, but the rest of the external factors now look a lot like that. just it's you know, it's really, it's a very frothy place right now. So market context is always important, but when's a good time? A good time should always be driven by, I think, a need and opportunity within a business or within a stakeholder group. And that might be the current owners of a business. It might be the succession team behind and around that founder group. But most businesses who've got a plan, and I think most good businesses have got some form of a plan, even if it's a loose one ought to be able to recognize when they get to that point in their own cycle, irrespective of the external conditions, when there's an opportunity to take the thing on a level. Either it's the opportunity to, to be in the US, to develop a new product, to develop a new offering. There's a team that they want to develop. Generally, those sort of internal business triggers are the things that should tell somebody, this is the time to pause and think about whether organic is the way we can or should do this. Mm. And And in this current market, responding to that question in a way which is actually it doesn't need to be organic we could find a cleverer faster way of doing it It doesn't necessarily mean you have to sell the agency and this is perhaps linked into the private equity point but perhaps you're not the right people to fund and bear 100 percent of the risk of, of taking on that opportunity but that's where this kind of private equity opportunity i think is demand from that community meets supply from the marketplace where so much change in our industry and so much opportunity, but for so many people, when you have as you say, when you've built something that's precious to you for five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, yeah it takes real I was going to use more colorful language, nerves mm-hmm. of steel to you know to um, to really kind of take that risk and and put those twenty years of investment you know entirely on your own on your own personal bank balance tough
0: I was speaking to an agency owner the other day who had built his business for the last sort of ten years, B two B agency owner, and they've gone through they've gone through a couple of different iterations or sort of differentiating sort of core service propositions, and they've arrived quite fortuitously at a point where the market seems to value more now what they they happen to offer, uh, and it's quite accidental that they've sort of arrived at this point. They haven't intentionally sort of positioned the agency, uh, you know, uh, in, in this way, it just so happens that because of the way that the market is sort of valuing more it's sort of ecosystem plays at the moment, it seems as though they're the only agency or one of few agencies that are positioned to to really uh, service top tier enterprise brands. So they're looking for investment at the moment to really kind of take them on to the next level. So that goes back to your point around sort of spotting a market opportunity, being quite lucky in some ways that they've positioned themselves that they happen to be positioned in in such a way but because of the market opportunity that's presented themselves they now have this opportunity to grow and take on investment to help fund the growth and the next stage of their business
1: yeah i, look, I that, and that completely resonates with me although clearly i'd love to have the phone number of that person you were talking to and <laughs> have a separate conversation <laughs> with them. I think the essential difference between that you know, five-year-ago environment or you know, looking back further, the 10-year-ago environment is, is M&A was pre- predominantly, and I guess the majority of transactions in the next 12 months will still mainly be of this type, was was mainly destination deals. So when you do that transaction, that you set yourself on a path to at some point you will be fully owned by another larger organization doing a similar or adjacent thing to you, and you'll become part of that furniture and you know eventually probably your business and maybe your brand will sort of disappear that sort of destination deal was what almost all m&a was about a while ago and increasingly it's becoming a very important part but there's more and more of exactly what you've just described from the person you were speaking to i've got an opportunity to go to the next level don't want the destination today i've got a lot of stuff i want to do for myself But in order to get there in the speed that I want to get there, I'm probably going to need some capital. And so my current, you know, trading cash flows will just take me too long to do it. So I want a burst of capital. And look, frankly, if I'm going to take a big step change in my business and try and take it to the next level, but I spent 10 years building it. I don't want to I don't want to do it without sort of de-risking a little bit on the way. I want to cash in some of the value that I've built so that I kind of. The private equity community has this kind of slightly slightly irksome uh, expression where they talk about people, you know, private equity deals, creating an environment of good deals where people are, you know, get up early in the morning to come into work and, and do that, to take it to the next level, but they're not staying up all night worried about it. And that's the kind of, that, that's the dynamic. I think if you're if you if you're taking a business to a next level internationally or pouring millions of pounds into product development, that's going to keep you up all night. If someone else has actually put the money in and you've taken some money out along the way, you can at least kind of be slightly more philosophical about the risks that you take alongside the opportunity. So yeah, it's it's exactly that kind of B2B conversation you are having that from a supply perspective is driving, creating the opportunities for the private equity investors because they're not, by definition, they don't offer that that destination deal. That's not what it's about. It's buying something a business with growth potential with momentum with an opportunity that you can you can validate you know through diligence and through expert advice and putting money into it you know taking an educated bet and and often frankly not contributing much other than the capital Hmm. but you know contributing the the peace of mind and the capital to allow someone to get on and do it Hmm.
0: so so let's say that an agency owner has come to that decision they are ready to sell how should how much should they sell their agency for how, how do they think about valuing their business
1: that's uh another, that's an- another it's podcast. another two-hour podcast <laughs> yeah well, I'd say, yeah that's a lifetime's work i think the the, the the first thing to do and of course all buyers are experts at, at the counter argument for this but from a seller perspective you want to really be thoughtful about your where you think the best business opportunity is for your company, but yeah, where your asset will, will have the best opportunity to grow. I think being thoughtful is a really important thing that does two things for you. One, it allows you to think about what the value is. And two, it allows you to think about the value of the business under the new ownership regime, if you like. It's probably a poor word to use, but in that, you know, in that new world. And to your question, always the way to think about what value to sell for is not what your company is worth to you today. Mm. It's what it's worth to the buyer. Once they, once they are fully established as the owners of the business, be that a year, two, three years down the track. Mm. And that, and that's the great art of negotiation because value should never be what it is today in the hands of the current owner, but it's always about the potential for what it can deliver over, over the future on a sustainable basis. And therefore, you know, that looks really different in the hands of different owners for a management consultancy, strategy consultancy firm, you know, perhaps has the benefit to take an agency and basically sell similar services, but on an entirely different rate card. There's a much different commercial opportunity than in the hands of the current owner, an agency selling into a big international network would probably, should probably expect, always would have expected that there would be some sort of at least soft client synergy and integration synergy about being part of something bigger, which would create more revenue opportunity and, and more margin efficiency. So value really is kind of context specific, should be context specific. Mm. And, and people who, who know me know that I absolutely have a pathological hatred people asking me a slightly different question to the one you asked me, mm. the question I hate being asked because it's so one-dimensional is what multiple is the right multiple. Mm. And you know when I get asked that question,
0: thank God I didn't ask that question.
1: Well, it, well, yeah, I mean, it, but it's a great. It was my next one on the list. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah, scratch that one. You know what, why is that the wrong question? There are and there are so many reasons why that's the wrong question because. And you start with multiple of what, on what basis? How do you define profit? Is it revenues? Is it historic? Is it future? How does a buyer help you with profits and growth? And, and hold on a second, you know, what about the rest of the deal? You know, the, the financial deal of course is, is, is critical to buyer and seller because if there's not a sensible financial deal, there just isn't a deal. But for most people, the, the financial terms are not actually the overall ambition of a deal there are a requirement, you know, part of the package is financially it must work. For most people, though, it's not that. I genuinely mean that. It might sound like it kind of, you know, that's a sort of BS comment from a deal advisor. But genuinely, for most people, the, the, the reason that they choose one potential buyer of a business over another is not financial terms, which in most cases will boil down to, you know, sometimes you get outliers. The valuation is based off the same broad economics for agency businesses. So valuations tend not to value hugely widely, not the headline terms. It's the, it's the rest of the package. What does it mean for me? What is the client opportunity? What is the opportunity for my team, for talent development, for building the thing? And that fuels the profits that drive incremental value. So, yeah, that, that, yeah, asking about multiple is definitely, it's definitely not the best question. And how to think about value is... It's really complicated, but if you understand your business well and you understand its market and you've got a view as to where you might be able to take it over the next three years, I think trying to look any further out more than three is frankly pretty challenging. If you've got all of those ingredients, I think you can have, you can sit down, and you have a pretty sensible view on value in the hands of different, you know, partner, uh, partner groups potentially.
0: What surprises most people about selling their businesses?
1: Honestly, it, sometimes it's actually fun,
0: mm.
1: I think for most people. And, 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 I suppose if you, if you ask, if you ask the question at different points in the cycle of selling, selling a business, what surprised the most, I think the answer varies over time. I think from our previous conversation, you might remember I had a fairly long shift at Omnicom where I mm. ran their M and A program outside North America. And, and I did a sort of mini MBA thesis on this, on this kind of question. Well, what surprises people and how does it work? Where does it work and where doesn't it? Going into a deal process, people think it's going to be stressful, all about the numbers, mm. and a kind of real sort of hard-fought financial battle. Mm. And actually, pretty quickly they get surprised that it's not that. It's a chemistry thing. It's a it's it's a, it's a business thing. That's a big surprise to people. Mm. It shouldn't be, but it's because again, the the financial thing is. The question of what's my company worth is something that people, I'm sure, spend a lot of time dwelling on, but actually when you're thrust into the spotlight and you're talking about it, it's non-expert territory for almost all agency owners, and it's kind of terrifying. But actually when it comes down to it, that part doesn't take care of itself, but it is secondary to the business fit and chemistry conversation, which then drives the value piece. And that surprises most people. Then they get surprised. actually it's pretty hard work selling your business it's pretty it's a pretty pretty rigorous process Hmm. and hope and hopefully hopefully they get surprised that post deal actually it's not all the horror stories that they heard from people down the pub and it's you know as always with everything in society uh you know bad news stories travel faster and wider and there are you know the number of times people have said to me, well, you don't hear it too much anymore because the networks have not been, you know, as present in the last few years." All these horror stories about earnouts not working out and and uh, and, and what earnouts feel like, um, and, and I never trust the fact that you'll get paid anything more than the day w- the day one payment. I've never experienced, <laughs> I've never yeah. experienced any of those things, and nor of any of my clients. And um, so, th- look, I think. There are, there are a number of surprises along the way. I, I, I don't uh, happily; they tend not to be unpleasant surprises. I suppose that's probably the best way mm. to respond to your question.
0: Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about private equity because this is the term that's on everyone's lips. It seems as though it's come out of nowhere in the agency space in the, in the last in the last few years. As you said, it was the big yeah. networks that had dominated for a very long time, and then the tech yeah. companies, and then all of a sudden a lot of people are talking about private equity let's define our terms and demystify this for everyone yeah. what is private equity and what what do some agencies think it is and what are some of the misconceptions
1: yeah yeah okay so, so i think the in order to do this we we have to be able to use a word that brits are very very worried about using and kind of it's, it's almost a sort of shameful thing that like, money Money is something we have to talk about, and none of us like doing it. It's just not natural to us, um, but, you know, that's the central answer to your question. Mm. Whether network, consultancy, tech firm, all of those, I used the term before, a, a destination place for people selling a business. So the fundamental structuring around those transactions is buyer buys to own and build forever. So that's the plan. You know, it, it's a forever part of the furniture. Those businesses are almost all publicly owned businesses. So they're all, they've all got shareholder bases. But so those bases are kind of you know, anonymous through the stock exchanges. But they're all accountable to their shareholders for financial performance. But it's a different return model. Those shareholders are generally looking for annual dividend payments that you yeah. know, pay the big pension funds that own these companies. Yeah. So that, that's the model that was dominant. In recent years, as the investment community has looked for other ways to drive returns, And with stock market performance being, you know, potentially kind of risky and government bond performance being, you know, patchy at at times as well, where else can we deploy money smartly? So private Hmm. investment, and we use the term private equity, but private investment, private money, and, and what private equity firms generally are 90 plus percent of the time is they are firms of professionals that have got relationships with large financial institutions that have secured funding commitments from big international pension funds, for example, pledges of money to them to create funds. And each fund might have seven to 10 years sort of lifespan. And in that seven to 10 year period, the, the investors, the prof- the, the, this professional community, the investment vehicle has undertaken, basically when they've got the pledges of money, they've undertaken to try and achieve certain levels of financial return in, over that period of time. So they'll use the seven years, 10 years, whatever the kind of predetermined period is to deploy the capital and to realize the capital. So they'll go buy the agencies and they will also help those agencies grow so they can be exited at the kind of target profit level in order that then when you get to the end of the seven years or the 10 years, that you can return the funds to the investors with, with the profit margins they'd expected to be, to be deployed. And most of the PE firms will be running multiple funds at once. And each fund they go out and raise will be based on the success of previous funds. So they need to be kind of showing consistent performance, uh, investing successfully, i.e. getting their hands on good, interesting businesses, helping them grow and also selling them at a, at a multiple of what they bought them for first time around. Mm. So the, the business model is fundamentally different and, and what's behind it is that word that we don't like talking about, which is money, which mm. is you know, an, inv- an investor, through, it, they're not buying to own, they're buying to sell. So they're, they're looking for a business that they could sell in a few years time for much more money than they're buying today. That's that's fundamentally how it's working.
0: Mm, okay, interesting. And I guess that's the fundamental difference then between the consultancies and, and and the networks. They're not buying to own in PE, they're buying to sell. And that's a fundamental difference. So when an agency owner is thinking about Selling to a PE buyer over a holding group, or a tech buyer, or, or a consultancy, yeah. what factors should go into that decision making yeah. process?
1: Yeah, 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 crucial, and and you summarised it perfectly. So that current ownership group should, I think, should be should be should be thinking about if my business has something that feels like a significant dramatic probably stretching it too far, but, but a kind of step change in the business, an opportunity that is a demonstrable big change that requires investment capital or that requires me as a current owner to de-risk. But I, I feel really confident that if I, if I just had the access to the capital, I could take this business and I could double the size of this thing in the next three to five years. That is, on the face of it, that's perfect private equity territory. Mm. Beneath the surface, the, the question as, a, as an owner you have to be thinking about at that point, you also need to answer is the, what, what would the private equity owner be selling in a few years' time? Because it's fine that it's a business that's twice as big as it was at the time they bought it. I mean, that financially sounds amazing, but that business has still got to be on a growth path at that exit point. So the, the, the crucial second question is, who's going to be running this thing in three years' time? Mm. And quite often what happens in, in that, um, you know, dramatic period of change, that step change thing, or and particularly when you see UK businesses moving into the US, when they do get it right, the US side of the business quickly overtakes the UK side of the business. So you might have a kind of UK founder, CEO or, or board today, and in three to four years time on a PE exit, you might well actually have a different chief exec, and they might be based out of the US, for example. So it, it could look really different, really, really different. So that kind of opportunity for step change is what kind of typically demarcates private equity relevance versus other strategics. And and it's that if you're selling a business into the destination buyer today, but you've only done half your work, you're underselling it. You're you're you're, you're not selling it at full value. And and potentially you're not selling the business in its best shape to go into that owner either.
0: So you said earlier... That the agencies have to sort of plan for well, who's going to be running the business in the next sort of three to five years, and what does that conversation need to look like? What have you learned about the importance of having a clear plan for management succession?
1: Yeah, yeah c- crucial, really crucial. I mean, if I, I just kind of contrast it with the with the you know the destination deals, the strategic deals, the number of times you you have conversations as an MA advisor around, you know, do I need an EMI scheme? in the you know, three months running up to starting a sale process. And not because, you know when you get asked that question, it's not because there's an obvious set of candidates for future leadership in the business. Because if, if there were, you wouldn't ask the question that way, it's, it's almost part of the window dressing to help get a sale done. And that's sort of, I can sort of understand that mindset in the, if you're going into another organization that could eventually absorb your business, yeah, if if the management pool kind of ran out of energy, private equity, It doesn't happen. You know, it's an investment vehicle. They they're they don't have any management expertise in businesses. Um, they have no intent, no desire to be involved in the companies in which they invest, other than kind of making sure that businesses are facilitated by smart non-execs with lots of good experience to help them grow a bit faster. They, they don't want to statement they're not qualified and don't have any interest in in management functions in the companies that they're, they're invested in mm. so it's absolutely fundamental and and it can't be the sort of lip service succession planning that you know i'm not going to say it's a hallmark of some of the strategic deals but it's certainly you know it's certainly there's some window dressing rather <laughs> than kind of genuine sort of succession okay. planning that, that that you do see occasionally in strategic deals
0: Really interesting. So so why has there been such a kind of explosion of PE in the, in the last few years then? I mean, does that go back to what you said earlier about, I guess, the hedge, fund, hedge funds and the and the pension funds just seeking new sources of growth in the market? Like, why have we seen such an explosion in PE?
1: Yeah, well, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, obviously, this industry is a massive, global, well-documented, fast Pace, fast change industry, and where there's change, there's opportunity. So I mean, I think you know the, the market as a whole is super energetic and, and, and very, very dynamic, and, and that's a better market to invest in than than a more static one. But you could argue that this market's always been like that. I think you know one of the one of the things that makes this market feel a little, this industry now feels different than it did five or ten years ago is financial investors don't, again, they, don't, they won't pretend to be experts in our industry, but they'll, so they'll look for things that are de-risking elements in businesses in which they're investing and businesses that are backed by technology more than by reliance on a sort of superstar creative or that have, you yeah, have clear data assets that could be exploited or systems or IP, they become more investable, again, slightly kind of Corny term, but they just they got slightly more predictable financial returns attached to them, mm. and I think that's not really reflective of the overall industry. But if that's the front door for investors who've come in looking for companies that are playing at let's say the kind of marketing data end of the of the industry, as opposed to the reputation consultancy end of the industry, it still brings them in. And as they come in and they get to understand the market better. They've understood actually that the biggest fear you get that other kind of cliches the assets that go up and down in the lift at night mm. you know that that was a huge off putting factor uh ten fifteen years ago on in our industry and I think that's sort of understandable that if you're not i remember when I was at Omnicon we bought uh, the wolf wolf olins and an l d c were the were the owners at the time and they that was a real for them you know they were one of the early investors in a people services Business by the early PE investors, but it was a pretty hair-raising experience. I would think you know you've got an iconic brand consultancy guru with his name above the door. He's built this amazing business. I would think then there was very very little private equity precedent in the UK at all. Some a bit more in the US, so they were real kind of trailblazers. But now, I mean, frankly, if you look around, a reasonably high proportion of some of the bigger more successful uk agencies and european agencies they've got private equity in 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 there as as part owners of of the business Mm. so there's a bit of the herd mentality as well if i look around me and my peers are all in this and and they're doing a decent job of it and making good returns on the money they're investing it's kind of like i've got to i've got to be in that game Uh, so i think now actually it's the days of the lbc investing in a wolf Olins, for example really long gone and the people services end of our market is it's very well understood now and i mean it's not risk free clearly it's not risk free for anyone but it's understood and there's plenty of precedent for success and you know you always get those fca adverts telling you that you know past success isn't a you know indicator of future yeah. performance or whatever the thing is that you hear at the end of all the financial services adverts but it isn't but you know what it does build a bit of confidence and there's enough of that kind of benchmark confidence level that says, really dynamic global industry, big amounts of budget, not going anywhere, society is moving more digital, companies are engaging more directly with consumers than they ever have done before, Mm. this is going to be an industry that is going to be successful, it's always been successful, it's more relevant now than ever Mm. and I look around at my peer group and this firm's just invested $100 million here and this one's invested $300 million there Oh, and look, Martin Sorrell's doing the same thing here, having left WPP, and he's using public money. But you know, it's 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 the same kind of play. It, it, there's too much success for anyone in the PE community to ignore it now.
0: Hmm. Really fascinating. Thanks for giving us this um, in-depth insight into into sort of the changes over the last few years. It's been it's been really enlightening. I think a good place to end before we get into our favorite questions, would be to talk about a recent deal that Waypoint advised on. So you you advised on the, um, on uh, Headland, they're they're an agency specializing in financial and corporate reputation and and public affairs. And they secured a minority investment from LDC, the private equity arm of Lloyd's Banking Group. What does that investment mean for Headland in the way that they think about the future of their business and they think about sort of the next step in their evolution?
1: Yeah, it's... um... It's a pretty good, I don't want to blow their trumpets if Dan Mines is listening to this podcast, I don't want to make him too, feel feel too good about himself, <laughs> but it, it's a classic, in my mind, a classic case study of, of the ingredients that make for successful PE because it is about, it's about confidence. That's an organization that has, has, has just had tremendous success in, well, really sustained success over the last seven, eight years, but really its momentum has been gathering over the last few years, you know, terrific team, really established market positioning, all those hallmarks of a real kind of best in class business and with tremendous growth alongside that and an incredibly um, self-aware and forward-looking leadership team that dedicates itself as a leadership team, really, and certainly certain individuals are specifically full-time focused on this, on where they are going in the future. They're not they're not content with today and they're not complacent about today. And Dan, who I referred to a second ago, the managing partner, it's his full-time job is thinking about how they continue to build and develop that, that business successfully. So they, they could see they've reached that point. The, the management bench in the business, unbelievably strong, ambitious, young, motivated, and there's a huge opportunity, not with a particularly fixed path, but with lots of kind of clear potential routes for growth. But the kind of thing where you have spent, you know, a decade building a business up, that doing that entirely at your own risk, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, at that point, you want to allow other people within the business to participate more in the future growth of the business, and and you bring in a you bring in an investor to help you, you know, fund the, the risk investment you'll take for that growth. So I think for them, it will give them a huge amount of confidence. They're a few months into that investment now, and seem to be settling in brilliantly well, and, and for them confidence really also, as I, as I described that precedent piece a second ago, LBC have, as, a, as a firm, and there are lots of London firms who've got similar levels of experience, have a huge track record in, in the industry of success and, and a personality style. Back to my earlier point about deals not really being about the financials, they're about you know, the chemistry and the, and the strategic opportunity as a team of human beings the LBC guys sort of get the industry and get this kind of business so yeah confidence they've got the financial muscle they've got the momentum and they've got they've got an investor who has a track record in allowing great management teams to just crack on and do it so yeah they're all feeling pretty good about life at the moment
0: absolutely love it I can't let you go without asking our favorite questions these are the questions that we ask all of our guests. So I'm going to pick some of these. I think you remember this from the first time that we spoke.
1: i do tell you, no, this, is, oh, this is terrifying. This is terrifying, <laughs> isn't it?
0: It is, because you don't know what I'm going to ask, because I'm going to ask you very different questions to what I asked you the last, the first time. So uh, the last time we spoke, in between then, we had this, slight, this little pandemic thing that's been going on. Yeah. What have you been watching on Amazon or Netflix, or what have you been streaming that's good, that's kept you entertained through this period?
1: This this is probably, um, <laughs> probably doesn't necessarily suit the um, professional advisor kind of, I should be talking about, I don't know, some sort of Churchill documentary, I guess. <laughs> uh, I have to confess, and I, it, it became in the end a bit of a, yeah, well, yeah, it became in the end just a, like, it, we, we just sort of toughed it out. So every evening at nine o'clock, my wife and the kids and the, and the dog and I get on the sofa and, and sit in front of a Netflix box set. We've just, actually, we, we're just about to start season three of fargo which i'm absolutely loving but Brilliant. before we got into fargo we had just done every single episode of marvel's agents of shield <laughs> and i've got to tell you that i think i think there are about 130 or 150 episodes
0: you're joking me where do you find the time
1: well I t- well it's been a, it's, you're right it's been a long pandemic <laughs> after about age, after episode 100 you recognize every set is just recycled from like three episodes <laughs> before i mean it's just Anyway, I'm sorry if anyone's uh, tuned in from, uh, from from Netflix. Yeah, oh, wow, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I don't, I don't put you and and that series together in my in my mind Jim, when I am thinking about Netflix documentary, uh, Netflix series. So, thanks for sharing that. What have you been reading that's good, or what books do you tend to go back to time and time again that have been influential in the way that you think about markets and M and A and agency growth and all the stuff that we've been talking about.
1: You know what again, another confession I shouldn't be making because life as an m and a advisor is pretty all consuming um, you know it's generally a generally a sort of twelve ish hour day and generally you know not five days a week when i'm not when I've not got my head into client challenges or kind of or general market stuff around the business, I tend to switch out of it entirely mm. um and i'm I'm a bit of an obsessive around um political history, particularly recent american political History and and you know, the family and I just came back well a couple of years ago from a stint living in the states and we were there when mm. when Trump was elected so I've spent a lot of time reading uh, accounts from inside the White House from you know from from that four-year nightmare yeah. uh, and but but the experience of reading those now with him gone and I'm sorry we shouldn't mix politics with this should we such a different experience from when the guy was still there and there was a terrible prospect that he might have continued sure. Uh, so I enjoy reading those books now with kind of morbid fascination yeah. more than more than I did when eh. when that was an ongoing <laughs> problem for the world. Well, it was
0: our reality. Yeah. So President Biden now is six months into, into his administration. Very safe pair of hands. It doesn't really seem to be too much angst or anxiety or sort of salacious news stories coming out of the White House. On one hand, do you slightly miss Trump? just for the just the entertainment that we were getting on a daily basis uh,
1: I, <laughs> I i i think you know everyone's experience of reality is very personal to them based on you know their own personal circumstances and the way their you know the bra their brain's been tuned over time I didn't find anything about trump entertaining actually you know Not I, even I, just i, to I, mean, laugh I love it and just I love well. I love the Saturday Night Live sort of you know parody sketches, but um, no, I, I, because again the m and advisory world can be quite can be quite high intensity, quite high pressure, and sometimes can involve some fairly catchy, even you know unpleasant conversations. And actually, when you switch, when you step away from those from your desk in the evening. Yeah, Marvel's Agents of Shield sometimes feels like a nicer place to put your head. <laughs> it's just all you <laughs> need?
0: <laughs> fair, fair point. Fair point. Okay. And my final question, Jim: What do you know about the world of PE today that you wish you knew twenty plus years ago when you first started in the beginning of your career?
1: Probably the same kind of thing. I wish I'd known about the kind of the, the marketing services M and A world. Full stop. I, you know, I guess I wish I had. Wish I'd been able to predict where it would be today because i think um a lot of us were quite dismissive about its role in helping agency businesses grow when it first came onto the scene but now that it has proven itself on the whole to be a, you know to, to be a successful template you know, model i think a lot of us would have embraced it more openly and you know it might have been able to do more good around our industry more more quickly if we had
0: great place to end jim thank you so much for doing this again
1: absolute pleasure uh, hopefully the next time we meet up we won't have had something called a pandemic going on in the middle
0: God, hopefully so we have been speaking with jim horton he is currently a partner at waypoint partners if you enjoyed this conversation then you can head over to apple podcast where you can listen to over 136 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in the agency landscape please email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com we would be unable to do our show without our very own Dealmasters. Sarah Spence is our production assistant. Tyler Baller is our booker slash editor. Christoph Boaszczak is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.